0: Episode 27 of War in the Book of Mormon Part 6.2 First Kingman Dissension Campaign What happens when a subgroup of a society hates the organization, structure, and institutions of that society? In the Book of Mormon, we have three different approaches to answering this question. The first were the Antichrist's. People and groups who opposed the cultural foundations of the Nephites, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We discussed Antichrist in greater detail in Episode 9, or Part 2.3. The second are a group that we will now name as the Kingmen. This was a group that attacked the political structure of the society. They wanted to change the governing structure from a magistracy based on laws and checks and balances of judges to a king. Amalekiah was not the first person to lead such a group. If you remember back in episode 18 or part 4.3, we discussed Amlici, who argued for a change in government from judges to a king. Amlici's dissension occurred in the fifth year of the reign of the judges, about 20 years earlier than the events that begin our discussion in this episode. The third approach is represented by secret combinations— that come most directly in the form of the Gadianton Robbers. We discuss them in detail in Part 7 of this podcast series. The Gadianton Robbers Attack the Social Fabric and Civic Institutions of a Society. Consider what the Book of Mormon provides us today, an explanation for how groups seek to destroy societal foundations by attacking the culture, the government, and the civil society. I believe that there are profound insights in this discussion for the 21st century world. This episode begins with where we ended episode 25, with the dissension of the people of Morianton. The conclusion of the Moriantonite dispute and the resolution of the issues between the peoples of Morianton and Lehi coincided with the death of the Nephite chief judge, Nephiha, as we are told in Alma 50.37. The Nephites were not immune from the contentious succession of rulers that plagued so many ancient societies. The next issue of armed conflict in the Book of Mormon had direct relation with this period of leadership transition. It is important to view this conflict in light of the still existent conflict with Amalekiah. He was of the same political and probably tribal orientation of those who came to be called kingmen. It is probable that his agents and spies were instrumental in orchestrating the events we will discuss at Zarahemla as he was preparing his eastern invasion force that will be addressed in our next episode. What we will discuss in this episode was one of the longest Nephite campaigns fought against a single opponent and it required Moroni's complete or near-complete focus for more than two years. The synoptic chronological view is crucial to appreciating the full scope of events described only briefly. Neither Moroni nor Lehi II appear in any battle in either the eastern or western theaters until the latter end of the 27th year of the reign of the judges, even though Amalekiah invaded Nephite lands in the 25th year of the reign of the judges. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Overview of the Battle We will read almost all of the verses that cover this topic. They are Alma chapter 51 verses 17 to 21. However, I suggest that the majority of chapter 51 is relevant to this discussion. I encourage you to read the account prior to what follows. Amalickiah's dissension occurred in the 19th year of the reign of the Judges. He was effectively chased out of Zarahemla and fled to the land of Nephi that same year. Morianton's dissension occurred in the 24th year of the reign of the Judges. He led the people out of the land of Morianton and toward the land northward, where they were stopped, or headed, by Teancum and his army. There was a battle. Morianton was killed And the people of Morianton were returned to their land. For those keeping count, that is one dissension that fled to the south with partial success and one dissension that fled to the north with little to no success. At or near the end of the twenty-fourth year of the reign of the judges, Nephiha died and his son was, and I quote from Alma 50 verses 39 and 40, appointed to fill the judgment seat in the stead of his father Yea, he was appointed chief judge and governor over the people, with an oath and sacred ordinance to judge righteously, and to keep the peace and the freedom of the people, and to grant unto them their sacred privileges to worship the Lord their God, yea, to support and maintain the cause of God all his days, and to bring the wicked to justice according to their crime. Now behold, his name was Pahoran, and Pahoran did fill the seat of his father and did commence his reign in the end of the twenty-and-fourth year over the people of Nephi. Quote. Virtually every change in the chief judgeship resulted in some significant violent event from the ascension of Alma II to the death of the final chief judge before the arrival of Jesus Christ. There is a pattern that is unmistakable to emphasize what I already stated. Within a matter of months, the people who will come to be called kingmen were calling for a change in the law. I love the way that Mormon refers to the events preceding the violence as it comes across as very dry humor. He starts in Alma chapter 51 verse 2 and it continues to verse 6. In verse 2, Mormon explains the problem as, and I quote, Nevertheless, they did not long maintain an entire peace in the land, for there began to be a contention among the people concerning the chief judge Pahoran. For behold, there was a part of the people who desired that a few particular points of the law should be altered. Close quote. The differences of opinion led to anger and a warm dispute, but not to bloodshed. What were the points of difference? We are told in verse 5, and I quote, and it came to pass that those who were desirous that Pahoran should be dethroned from the judgment seat were called kingmen, for they were desirous that the law should be altered in a manner to overthrow the free government and to establish a king over the land. Close quote. Mormon makes it sound minor, but the points of change were the fundamental basis of governance, king versus magistracy. That is dry humor to me. The Nephites settled these particular points of dispute and then Amalickiah arrived with his army to attack along the east coast. We will address Amalickiah's campaign in the east next episode because as Moroni was gathering an army to go against the invading Lamanites, the king men rose up to oppose the actions. Instead of fighting Amalickiah, Mormon led a Nephite army of free men against the kingmen for what I believe will be something like two to three years of campaigning. Geographical Setting There are no specific locations given for the kingmen dissension campaign. Mormon records in Alma 51.18 that Moroni marched forth against them, and in Alma 51.20 that at the end of the fighting, the title of liberty was caused to be hoisted upon their towers and in their cities which gives the impression of the fighting taking place in a variety of locations over the expanse of the land of Zarahemla. I imagine that this occurred primarily in the center of the land of Zarahemla, as we are not given any information on crossovers of campaigns between the fighting on the east or in the west and against the kingmen. The closest thing to such a crossover event is in the reference in Alma 52, 11, quote, and he also said unto him, I would come unto you, but behold, the Lamanites are upon us in the borders of the land by the West Sea, and behold, I go against them, therefore I cannot come unto you. Quote. This is Moroni speaking to Tiancom. And Moroni told Tiancom in this verse that he was dealing with a problem in the West, while at the same time, I suppose, he was still dealing with the kingmen. Based on the sketches that I have done, I am supposing that the fighting against the kingmen happened in and around the following cities, Zarahemla, Minon, Gideon, Jershon, Nephiha, Aaron, Sidom, and possibly Ammonihah and Noah. I think that one can safely assume that there were kingmen present in the cities captured by the Lamanites in the west, Manti, Zeezrom, Kumani, and Antipara. I expect that there were also kingmen in the cities captured in the eastern Lamanite campaign, but they were probably not involved in the fighting led by Moroni, as those cities were already captured. Who was involved? The combatants in this series of engagements come from two groups within the larger Nephite community, the freemen, or Nephite forces as they will be referred to here, and the kingmen. Nephite forces, freemen. We have no stated information on the size of the Nephite force. What do we know? We can safely assume that this campaign involved a series of battles or engagements. We are told in Alma 51.19 that 4,000 of the kingmen were hewn down or killed. As I will discuss in the kingmen portion, that gives us a sense of the size of their force, and from that we can start to guess on the size of the freemen or Nephite force. This was a dispersed and widely separated series of engagements, and therefore, it is probable that the Nephite force did not have to be very large, as the kingmen were probably never consolidated into a single army. Additionally, Moroni had to leave an army in the field to fight the invading Lamanites, as will be discussed in the next episode, so whatever force was engaged was without the assistance of the full army. With all of this supporting information taken into account, it is possible that at least one full Nephite army participated under the command of Moroni, and possibly a second or initially even a third under the commands of Lehi II and Antipas. Based on the imminent danger Moroni perceived in the internal dissension, the likelihood is that he would have tried to mass his efforts on this one enemy, the kingmen, and then deal with the second enemy meaning Amalekiah, Therefore, I suppose the Nephite force to be in the neighborhood of 6,000 men, and possibly larger. As Moroni understood his opponent and their locations, the importance of spies is somewhat diminished, though it should be expected that Moroni maintained his use of them throughout his fighting to determine entrances to forts, cities, and to pinpoint enemy force concentrations. As we will note in a future episode, Moroni seemed to be surprised by the loss of four cities in the West, which causes me to believe that his spy network was severely compromised during the fighting and that he was primarily using them at the tactical level. Kingmen Forces The Kingmen are identified in Alma 5118 as being of high birth, though this comment is not explained. It is probable that this title was linked to tribal leadership among specific tribes. Those of high birth may refer to family links to the tribe of Nephi or Mulek, tribes that had been leaders in the past and should retain that leadership by birthright. As the tribe of Nephi had retained the leadership of the Nephites throughout the historical record until this point, it is possible that the kingmen were oppositionally from the tribe of Mulek or Mulekites. That said, we are told that Amalickiah and Amaron, his brother, were descendants of Zoram. That challenges the Mulekite connection, but it does remain consistent with the point that king men may have been in opposition to being ruled only by Nephites. That said, the primary point of opposition was to being ruled by the law and by judges. No name is given for any of the leaders of the king men. It is possible that this is a result of the widespread nature of this movement, and therefore there was no single leader that stood out. More likely, it was a result of the fact that none of the individual leaders stood out as a significant teaching point for Mormon. There were 4,000 king men killed in the various engagements associated with this battle or campaign, as previously mentioned, and recorded by Mormon in Alma 51.19. Using the standard figures of losses before capitulation of 20 to 50%, this means that the total kingmen numbered between 8,000 to 20,000 warriors. Key Leaders in the Battle There are two identified or inferred leaders present in this campaign, Moroni and Lehi 2. These are leaders that we have identified and discussed in some detail in previous episodes. I only want to give some general comments about why these leaders are included here and what that might mean. Before I do, I want to remind the listener of what I previously stated, that Mormon does not provide the name of a single kingmen leader, and I believe it isn't possible to infer individuals from the material provided. Lehi 2 Nephite Commander We are not told that Lehi 2 accompanied or supported Moroni anywhere in the text, I infer his participation. Why? Because Lehi Tu also doesn't appear in the text with respect to fighting anywhere else. He isn't in the east, as that was where Teancum commanded. He wasn't in the west because Moroni put Antipas in charge. When Lehi Tu does show back up in the story again, it was to play a critical role in the battle of Mulek, and then Moroni placed Lehi Tu in charge of the eastern theater and the city of Mulek, as we are told in Alma 53 verse 2. We are also told in that same verse that, quote, Lehi was a man who had been with Moroni in the more part of all his battles, close quote. Meaning, he was probably part of this campaign. Moroni, Nephite chief captain. We know a lot about Moroni in this podcast series. I refer the listener to episodes 20 and 21, or parts 5.1 and 5.2, to get a lot more on Moroni. In this story, we see that Moroni was not some permanently pleasant person. We are told in Alma 51 verse 14 that he was exceedingly wroth with what he saw from the kingmen, and his soul was filled with anger against them. His first care, as recorded in 51.16, was to put down contentions and dissensions. What a profound lesson for leadership grand, and theater context. This campaign occurred just after the succession of the chief judgeship from the second to the third chief judge in the 25th year of the reign of the judges. Nephi Ha's position was appointed to his son Pahoran, as we are told in Alma 50 verses 39-40, to 40. and during his first year of reign, those who opposed the current system proposed changes to existing laws as given in Alma 51-2. The points of law that were requested to be changed dealt with the very organization of the government. Those making the recommendations wanted to have a king as the senior governing official. Pahoran refused the petition, and the opposition began to seek his removal from office. The matter was put before the voice of the people, and the people decided in favor of those who named themselves freemen and against the proposition of having a king. The determination of the people nearly coincided with an invasion from the land of Nephi led by Amalickiah himself. He attacked the land of Zarahemla at the head of a wonderfully great army, as we are told in Alma 51.11. The kingmen refused to join with the rest of the Nephites and seemed to be ready to oppose the Nephites as well as refusing to fight with them. This certainly had to be on the mind of Moroni, as he sought for and gained permission to defeat the rebellion before going against the Lamanites. The petition he sent to Pahoran is, quote, with the voice of the people, close quote, and must have included a list of representatives or of names of Nephites who supported the request. What did it mean to have the voice of the people, or to have the voice of the people come in favor of, or to send a petition with the voice of the people, in 67 B.C. Obviously, these were not public opinion polls. Was it a vote? Was it an expression of representation through families, clans, and tribes? Maybe the judges were tribally connected and they met like something of a Roman Senate to express the will of the people. We honestly do not know what such phrases mean or how they were expressed. In the present-day Church of Jesus Christ, there is an expression of the voice of the people when a person's name is presented to the congregation to serve in a specific position. The members of the congregation express their willingness to support that person in her or his service by raising the right hand. It is possible that this is akin to what Mormon meant. There was somebody that expressed solidarity with the idea presented and that body was somehow representative of the people, writ large. Technical Context I want to mention two items here. First, note in the scripture I am about to quote the process by which the voice of the people was used to generate this campaign. I quote from Alma 51 verse 15, and it came to pass that he, being Moroni, sent a petition and the voice of the people unto the governor of the land, desiring that he should read it, and give him, Moroni, power to compel those dissenters to defend their country or to put them to death. Quote. Moroni generated the action. He will do this again during this war. But I want to emphasize that the kingmen represented a rebellion which is political as well as military, and Moroni recognized that he needed permission from the governor of the land. Note that the verse does not refer to Pahoran as the chief judge in this context. Why not? Did the request of the kingmen have an effect on the structure of Nephite government, such that governor now becomes a more and more common way to refer to the chief judge? That isn't at the heart of my point, but Pahoran's confirmation as chief judge begins this linguistic change in reference to the chief judge. Back to my point on the process by which the voice of the people was used in this case. Moroni sent a petition, which I supposed to be in the form of a letter, with the voice of the people. This actually causes me to think of a petition, in this case a scroll with a bunch of signatures on it or something like that. I am not sure that this was what it was, but the language used leads me down this route. Moroni was requesting extrajudicial authority to compel rebels to support the state or face capital and lethal consequences. This is serious stuff, and to my way of thinking, it is interesting that the generator of this request for authority was the chief captain or military leader rather than the chief judge or political leader. The technical context element is to consider how such things worked within the Nephite world. We are never told about the constitution of the Nephite governing structures other than in the construction of the judges as Mosiah II departed from being a king. We don't really understand how war was declared or how lethal force was authorized. Moroni did not ask permission to go after Morianton, he didn't ask permission to defend Jershon or Manti. Nor do we have this reference to seeking permission to clear the east wilderness. Second, we are told in Alma 51 verse 20 that the dissenters, quote, yielded to the standard of liberty, close quote, and were, quote, compelled to hoist the title of liberty upon their towers, close quote. This sequence of events is one of the reasons that I often refer to this title of liberty period as a Nephite state. As the title of liberty seemed to have been something akin to the United States Declaration of Independence or the opening paragraph of the United States Constitution, as it provided a source of state like national focus and solidarity for the ideology espoused by those who called themselves Nephites. I want to remind the listener of what was stated in the title of liberty, as I quote from Alma 46, verse 12 In memory of our God, Our religion and freedom and our peace, our wives and our children. For those listeners familiar with medieval Europe, there is an analog. It was often the case in the pre gunpowder era that local castellans might oppose the will of the king. If one possessed a stone castle, then it was possible to hold out for some time and possibly indefinitely as the king could only keep his army of feudal warriors in the field for a certain amount of time. Kings in the early and high middle ages spent a great deal of time bringing these local holders of fortresses to heal and to be obedient to the mind and will of their liege lord. It is possible that in this period of the Book of Mormon record that wealthy families retained strongholds and control of cities and Nephite lands as well, and thus There was a sense of having kingmen cities and freemen cities. The notion of compelling the overcome rebels to fly a symbolic pennant from a tower or city leads one to believe that they were possibly already flying something else. What might that have been? Tactical Events Mormon provides no details of the engagements or battles that made up this campaign. All that we do have in the record is in Alma 51 verses 17 to 20. Quote, And it came to pass that Moroni commanded that his army should go against those kingmen to pull down their pride and their nobility and level them with the earth, or they should take up arms and support the cause of liberty. And it came to pass that the armies did march forth against them, and they did pull down their pride and their nobility, insomuch that as they did lift their weapons of war to fight against the men of Moroni, they were hewn down and leveled to the earth. And it came to pass that there were four thousand of those dissenters who were hewn down by the sword, and those of their leaders who were not slain in battle were taken and cast into prison, for there was no time for their trials at this period. And the remainder of those dissenters, rather than be smitten down to the earth by the sword, yielded to the standard of liberty, and were compelled to hoist the title of liberty upon their towers and in their cities and to take up arms in defense of their country, quote. I want to discuss a few of the details captured in these verses in the order that they appear. Moroni commanded that his army should go against the kingmen. That leads me to imagine that this was localized in problem and response. Moroni took his army of 2,000 or so. It is possible that because of his position, Moroni might have had a larger army. Regardless, we are told that it was his army, so directed. Twice, Mormon uses the expression to, quote, pull down their pride and their nobility, close quote. What did that mean? I imagine that there were a series of engagements or battles that involved fighting in cities, fortresses, and homes. When I say homes, I'm thinking of medieval-style manors and not the current home of a nuclear family. We don't read about Moroni coming to the Eastern Theater for more than two years, as we are told in Alma 52:18. This leads me to see this as something akin to a counterinsurgency campaign. Think of the fighting against the Taliban in Afghanistan, the FARC in Colombia, Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, or ISIS in Iraq and Syria as examples of what I mean. As we will discuss in a later episode, the fact that Moroni had to fight these same or similarly motivated people again further supports the counterinsurgency aspect of the fighting. Even though this is characterized as a counterinsurgency campaign, this was a bloody one. We are told that 4,000 were killed. That is a massive number, one of the largest specified dead given in the pre-Christ era of the Book of Mormon. The exceptions for casualties might be informative. The fighting against the dissenter Amlicites have enemy dead at 12,532, and we are told that the Lamanites lost tens of thousands in the tremendous battle of the wilderness. There may have been battles with greater losses, but those numbers are not provided. Interestingly, Mormon doesn't provide a single casualty count for any battle during the Amalekiahite War except for this campaign significance. There was a real sense of collusion between the kingmen and Amalekiah. If the voice of the people had favored a king, who would have been put forward as the new monarch? It is quite possible that Amalekiah or a person allied with him would have been the recommendation from the kingmen. This was the first opportunity Amalickiah had to reassert his position in Nephite politics following his initial political defeat. The death of a chief judge provided an excellent opportunity to present such a new petition. The loss of this second petition did not mean an end to those who sought for return to monarchy and leadership through means other than laws and judges. This is a common Book of Mormon theme. Later in this period and in later periods of Nephite history, I will address my thoughts about this in the next section. The coincidence of the invasion of and the dissension meant that Amalickiah was able to seize and secure lands along the eastern shores of the Nephite lands and to do so without having to face Moroni or his army, which was surely the best armed, armored and trained force in the land of Zarahemla. Lessons Learned Spiritual Despite the limited record, the importance of this campaign for spiritual application is significant. I will remind the listener of the following things in this and every subsequent battle analysis. I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived, and they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons or even those most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. 1. Act within your sphere of responsibility and ask outside your sphere of responsibility. Moroni directed his armies when it was clearly within his authority to do so, without consultation or delay. He also offered his counsel and requested authority to act when it was outside his specified sphere of responsibility. Moroni didn't ask the governor what he should do. He had a petition, and he had the voice of the people, and he asked for authority to do what he thought that he needed to do. This is a powerful and important pattern. For me and my family, I don't need outside permission to take action to correct behavior and make adjustments. I just need to do it. If I see something that needs correction in the broader church or civic community, then I should study it out, consider what needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and if I am capable. Willing and able to do it, then I should present that plan with my willingness and resources to those in authority to grant permission to take the action. I want to quote from Doctrine and Covenants, section 58, verses 26 to 28. For behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things, for he that is compelled in all things, the same, is a slothful and not a wise servant. Therefore, he receiveth no reward. Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and do many things of their own free will, and bring to pass much righteousness, for the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves, and inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no wise lose their reward. Close quote. Moroni is the embodiment of these principles of action. 2. There is no such thing as nobility in the sense of a class of persons with respect to quality or rank. That may be something of an offense for listeners in Commonwealth countries, and I am not intending to be offensive. There are people who have noble character and those who act with nobility, but I do not believe people are born into this. Nobility is an aspect of character and not birth. We should strive for nobility, but not demand to be treated as such. Ever. Such a demand runs counter to the concept of actually being of noble bearing. The notion of inherent equality of all people before God is a common theme in the Book of Mormon. I have a mantra that says, I am not important. The point is to provide the reminder that I am not inherently worthy of benefits from others. Such a mantra has helped me to avoid traps when I had opportunities to expect or demand special treatment. We have all heard stories of a Hollywood diva who makes unreasonable demands of others. This is the sort of pride and nobility that has no place in polite society or the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was this sense of inherent importance that fueled the demands and behavior of the kingmen in every generation, and it regularly needs to be pulled down. 3. The Title of Liberty, If You Can Keep It There is a story that dates back to late 18th century America, where a woman approached Benjamin Franklin, who was then emerging from the Constitutional Convention Assembly, and she asked something like, What sort of government have you, referring to the assembly, created. Benjamin Franklin reportedly said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. I hope this story is literally true. Whether or not it is metaphorically true, a republic, as a form of government, requires a virtuous citizenry to maintain. The voter needs to exert the effort to be properly informed and to be willing to hold elected representatives accountable for their actions. The title of liberty was a profound expression of personal and familial responsibility that connects powerfully to Benjamin Franklin's reported warning. You only get to keep such things if you are willing to exert sufficient effort to do so. What efforts am I willing to exert to keep my God, my religion, peace, my family? I need to make those efforts. 4. Oddly enough, many people want to be told what to do and how to be. Personal responsibility is not all that popular. There is a reason why Mormon tells us so much about this recurring desire by significant segments of the populace to return to rule by kings. I believe that is because he recognized in his understanding of us, or of his understanding of human nature, that it is common for people to be lazy and to seek to be told and directed. The message of the Book of Mormon and the Gospel of Jesus Christ, more broadly, is that we are actors and agents, and not subjects or objects. 5. The cost is great to do good. Doing good requires time in study, planning, preparation, and action. All by itself, time is a resource and a cost. Sometimes doing good also requires a monetary cost. God asks people to sacrifice their wealth to acknowledge his blessings and gifts, and to assist those in need. I think that Mormon is reminding us about the cost of doing good in opposition of evil when he provided numbers of dead in this campaign and not in any other from this war. 6. Fight the Internal Battle First Most of us are familiar with Christ's comment recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 7, when he said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. This famous expression is illuminated in other scriptures where one is told to cleanse the inner vessel. We cannot go out and fight the invading enemy if we are also faced with inner turmoil. We need to be clean, centered, Focused and able to hear the voice of God through the Holy Ghost before we can effectively engage with Satan in open combat, that means that our best army with our most capable commander needs to be focused on removing those difficult inner threats. This story is also useful in reminding us that we don't need to be perfect before fighting the external foe. Actually, we will have to do both at once. Tiancum and other commanders commanding city garrisons were fighting Amalickiah and his army as Moroni fought the kingmen. Moroni expressed that once united in purpose and effort, the Nephites were stronger. The same is true for us. Once the inner vessel is pure and we are able to concentrate on serving and elevating others, then our effectiveness will increase. Conclusion The defeat of Amalickiah's first force at Ammonihah and Noah, as discussed in episode 26, was or part 6.1, meant he had to gather and prepare another army. He also sought to weaken the Nephites from within as well as without. The work of those still loyal or friendly toward him served first to inform him of the dissension of Morianton and the death of Nephiha. Using those events as a means of dividing the Nephites, he planned to and did invade nearly in time with another politically divisive issue of kingmen versus rule of law. Amalickiah wanted victory any way he could get it. Mormon taught the reader about Amalickiah's devious ways and means to procure the kingship of the Lamanites as we discussed in detail in episode 24 or part 5.5. What we have discussed in this episode about Amalekiah seeking to subvert the political system of the Nephites, or at least use the subversion of others to facilitate his own imperial desires, is supportive of Mormon's previously discussed description of Amalickiah's character. Our next episode will explain the actions and events associated with Amalickiah's eastern campaign that culminated in the First Battle of Bountiful. And Tiancom's action-adventure behavior to assassinate Amalekiah. This is another one of the great stories in the Book of Mormon. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon, or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word: War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.